0: What has the government delivered? Yes, I stand by the statement. Who made that noise? He let out a little squeak. Order! Order! Point of order, Mr. Speaker. Supplementary. My question. Supplementary. Supplementary
1: Supplementary.
2: question. Kia ora and welcome along to Supplementary Question, a politics and current affairs podcast produced by News Hub Nation. I'm Finn Hogan. We're back for a ten-episode series this year, releasing monthly. For our first episode of the season, an issue that continues to divide the country and came to a head late last year.
3: Medicinal cannabis is an industry experts believe could be worth over a billion dollars here. The opportunity in the medicine side is getting swayed by people's perception of recreational drug use.
2: It was a narrow defeat following heated debate. Recreational cannabis legislation up in smoke, defeated by just over 2% of the vote. The final tally, 48.4 yes, 50.7 no. Cannabis will remain illegal.
4: Obviously we are really disappointed. I am disappointed that the Prime Minister did not say how she was going to vote. Do you recognise that you could have helped the Yes campaign? No, I don't I don't actually. I think ultimately New Zealanders made up their own mind.
2: Losing a chance to um, create some real societal benefits and reduce harm and change our approach to controlling cannabis. But despite the narrow margin, transformational change at least in cannabis legislation, seems to be off the table.
4: Look, when it comes to a referendum, a majority is a majority, and so it hasn't tipped the balance in terms of what we as a government will do.
2: But the issue of drug reform is far from settled. A recent poll by the Helen Clark Foundation found more than 69% of respondents showed support for either full decriminalisation or legalisation. And the New Zealand Medical Association, Public Health Association, Maori Law Society, Just Speak and Mental Health Foundation recently penned an open letter calling for the Misuse of Drugs Act to be scrapped and modernised.
1: Um, we still have a journey to run in terms of, 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 I think, more modern, progressive and sensible, responsible drug regulation. So this episode, I spoke with the politicians in charge. I think the referendum told us we've got more work to do.
2: Those fighting for change.
4: I never intended to be the person who was engaged in drug law. Like, this this was not my vibe.
0: And those pushing against it. That is a de facto decriminalisation of drugs from them in terms of the approach that we, we are seeing
2: asking them some, at times, uncomfortable questions. Have you ever taken ecstasy, Simon?
0: What do you reckon? (laughs) Uh,
4: I don't, know. no, I don't think I have.
2: As well as to the scientists pushing the frontier of what role currently illegal drugs could play in medicine.
3: My research specialty is in psychopharmacology, so understanding how drugs affect the brain.
2: All to answer this week's question. What's next for drug reform in New Zealand? How you doing? I started with the man who drafted the law that would have been in place had the referendum passed, Health Minister Andrew Little, and asked him what the referendum defeat taught him.
1: I think the message that came out of that referendum result, given what else happened in that election for the first time ever in MMP a party was given an absolute majority of parliament It was an absolute kind of slam dunk but actually the electorate said we're not ready for greater liberalisation at least in relation to cannabis that has to be respected it doesn't mean to say the argument goes away or stops
2: Don't you think the narrowness of the wording on the referendum disguised the real appetite for change though because you know we've got a UMR poll from the Helen Clark Foundation finding 69% supported either full legalisation or decriminalisation and that's a pretty huge mandate
1: I think what we know From this sort of thing, polls on this sort of subject, um, they are skewed in favour. And we got down to a very narrow margin, but a narrow margin against um, greater liberalisation.
2: But advocates disagree and are now pushing for a cross-party paper in support of cannabis decriminalisation, but would little support it.
1: Yeah, you see, that's not a—it's cam- not winning public confidence. That's actually saying, oh, OK, so we've got a party with an absolute majority, we'll see if we can shoehorn them into to doing something in Parliament. I'm not in favour of criminalisation because I think it's a halfway house that actually has the potential to do more harm than good. Decriminalisation doesn't deal with all the social harms behind cannabis supply. Um, it leaves most of them in place. So um, it lets some people off the hook and, you know, with possession and stuff, but it doesn't doesn't stop the criminal elements controlling and supply and and doing their stuff. I, I think the criminalisation is um, is a false paradise.
2: So what will he do instead?
1: Going to the festival season, we wanted to give some protection to organisations like Know Your Stuff um, as they were checking uh, the drugs that, that young know, people were consuming so that they could be safe. We're doing a more permanent uh, change on that later this year so that that, that will be in place and of course it won't be applicable just to music festivals, but will be you know a feature that can operate in you know, other parts of the community. Also, we are continually reviewing the changes we made in 2019 in terms of the um, allowing police discretion or, or at least uh, really saying we, we expect please to use their discretion not to prosecute in relation to possession offences and to look at a health response. We know that's happening to some degree. We just don't know how thoroughly and how well so there's going to be a review of that.
2: So short answer, not a lot. At least not the kind of transformational change people like Chloe Swarbrick are arguing for.
1: Misuse of Drugs Act
4: 1975 is literally a carbon copy of the Misuse of Drugs Act 1972 from the UK. So, I mean, if that inherently doesn't say anything, but also if you look at our um, history in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when we first moved to um, prohibit legally cannabis, it actually hadn't arrived in our shores, um, particularly in any meaningful way.
2: So, with all of that in hand, how disappointed are you that the government is steering away and softening their language on saying, well, that we're no wide scale decriminalization is something that we're not pursuing?
4: It feels, to be perfectly honest with you, not all too dissimilar to rhetoric when it comes to the housing crisis and the action or inaction um, following the declaration of this being not good enough. Um, So as far as the politics goes, I get it and it sucks. But, you know, the kind of signals and indications that I've got, particularly from the ministers who, you know, I've evidently been lobbying through um, more public means such as Question Time, but also, you know, behind the scenes. Um, It is really gutting that drug reform is one of those things that carries uh, so much, or drugs in general, um, and talking about the topic carries such a weight of controversy that to engage in the nuance and the complexity therein and to unpack some of these really easy mythologies, um, is just in the too hard basket. All of these issues are fundamentally just bound up in controversy because, you know, that drugs are scary.
2: <laughs> because you're right, it is controversial. I feel like a lot of people don't speak openly and honestly. So have you ever taken a psychedelic or ecstasy? Uh,
4: I don't know. I, no, I don't think I have. Um, I've been pretty open about uh, the fact that I have consumed cannabis. <laughs> um, but I think I'm actually pretty boring when it comes to the substances that I've used. <laughs> Which is, given the stereotype um, and caricature that I can be cast a,
2: so what about one of the MPs most visibly opposed to liberalisation?
0: Hi, Simon Bridges here. I'm unavailable at the moment, but please feel very free to leave me a message.
2: I started by asking if there was anything he and Chloe Swarbrick could agree on about what needs to happen next.
0: Um, there is something Chloe and I can agree on, and that is that actually a health response here is important. Um, and, and I think we'd actually both agree as well Um, yes, there's a long history to this but the Labour government's talk has been rather more than its walk when it comes to uh, mental health, drug and alcohol rehabilitation, having the the beds and the spots and the skilled staff that are required uh, to do that health job Uh, where where we disagree though is I think um, she might not put it like this but if I can characterise it, um, I also very much see it as a health and justice issue We can chew gum and walk at the same time. In terms of uh, uh, prison and criminal justice, I'd simply make the point: you know, personal use doesn't land anyone uh, in jail these days. Just doesn't happen.
2: You still get put into the system, though. You still, you can still get convicted. You can still that still has an effect on your life, whether or not you actually end up behind bars. E-
0: even that now, I, I I think is is questionable.
2: About 3,000 people convicted with utensil or possession charges last year.
0: You want to look at the circumstances of them, but I think I think you tend to find actually there were other things going on. On other charges, other reasons why uh, the police in those cases prosecuted. But we, we can do both. And th- there is no reason why we can't be compassionate in terms of uh, more skilled staff. And we need to see training on those. I think everyone agrees with that. It just doesn't seem to be happening at anything like right level. More mental health beds, more drug and alcohol rehabilitation.
2: Bridges is also vocal in his opposition to pill testing, which, as Andrew Little mentioned earlier, is set to be expanded later this year. With
0: the pill testing regime we now have in place, it's going to tell you if there's foreign things in it um, um, that that make the the MDMA pill uh, unpure, and that may cause you harm. But it's not going to tell you that thing you're asking for in relation to the MDMA and its strength. But I think that, that testing does provide uh, that false confidence to some young New Zealanders. Uh, as I say, in the UK, uh, what they saw as they liberalised the pill testing rating was the fatalities from MDMA um, go up exponentially.
2: I mean, I don't think it, 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 exponential, so because it came in in 2016, there were 63 ecstasy-related deaths, not just at festivals, about half of which could be attributed to ecstasy alone. And then next year dropped to 56, then it bounced to 92, then it went down to 78. So fluctuating, but I wouldn't say exponential growth.
0: It was significantly, and I haven't got the numbers in front of you, significantly lower than that, though, before the uh, the, the, the liberalisation. Well, have you ever
2: taken ecstasy, Simon?
0: What do you reckon? <laughs> uh, no, I haven't. Look, I've never taken illicit drug. Uh, I, I, I don't say that to sound like a choir boy.
2: But Bridges consistently brings up the international evidence. So what does it show us? The most data we have comes from Portugal, which decriminalized small amounts of all drugs in 2001 and has shown many positive results. Lower rates of drug use than the European average. Use of cocaine among young adults aged 15 to 34 is 0.3% in Portugal compared to 2.1% across the EU. Amphetamine and MDMA consumption is also lower in Portugal compared to the rest of the EU. Overdose rate is five times lower than the EU average. Canada liberalized cannabis in 2018 with many states in the US having done the same. But it's not all good news for those pursuing this path. Bridges is correct to say there's been an uptick in some deaths in countries that have liberalized, such as Washington state, where the percentage of drivers in fatal crashes who tested positive for THC doubled in five years since legislation passed from 9% to 18%. But with the overall trends seeming to suggest liberalization does not lead to higher usage rates, it's these models that advocates like Swarbrick say we should be following. But for now, that doesn't seem likely. However, there is one area which could hold hope for those awaiting drug reform.
4: Other states and jurisdictions are been light years faster than we are. I think that you know something which could be more politically palatable would be to say we could enable more research, particularly uh, yeah, that medicinal-based research.
2: While New Zealand has now passed significant medicinal cannabis reform, there is another frontier to the medicinal research for drugs. Someone at the forefront of that research works literally just down the road from New Hub Nation's Auckland office.
3: My name's Suresh Mutakumaraswamy. I'm an associate professor in the Faculty of Medical and Health Sciences at the University of Auckland, and my research specialty is in psychopharmacology, so understanding how drugs affect the brain and brain activity and how they might potentially have clinical usefulness.
2: Suresh is attempting a world-first clinical trial exploring the potential benefits of microdosing, taking small quantities of a drug throughout your day.
3: There's long been this idea of, well not long, reasonably recently of people taking microdoses of these class A psychedelic substances and that they might have potentially beneficial effects on their life. So people take it kind of as a lifestyle choice where they cut up their tabs of acid or their mushrooms and have them in pretty small quantities. And it's not a, we're talking pretty small quantities, right? Like 10th to a 20th of what people take when they're like blasting for like a big trip. So it's pretty small, right at the edges of perception.
2: You may be familiar with the practice from places like Silicon Valley where microdosing has taken off, dubbed the latest productivity hack in a culture obsessed with both productivity and hacking. But while there are many anecdotal reports of the benefits of microdosing, rigorous studies are rarer, and that's what Suresh is seeking to change.
3: What we're interested to do is to test whether, you know, the reports that people have from this kind of low microdosing, whether they're real and could it potentially have clinical use on this one day but then of course we then hit the regulatory barriers right because this is a class a substance and even though we you know plan to use this substance at you know very low doses such that you know a microdose of lsd is like less than presumably less than like having a pint of beer right we have hit the stumbling block at the moment is that we're the first study trying to do this thing in this country so that's created some barriers
2: in New Zealand LSD is a class a substance the same as heroin despite fewer than 100 people being arrested on psychedelic charges last year and not a single death directly attributable to LSD overdose here or anywhere else and according to Suresh that's the heart of the problem our drug laws aren't based on any hard science they're cultural artifacts each successive government has inherited
3: there is no health basis for how classes of drugs are classified because if you look at you know the harms associated with the particular drugs, they don't at all correlate with the classes that the drugs fall into. So drugs like LSD and psilocybin, we actually know that they're not that physically toxic, really not at all. And they're very unaddictive because you saturate your response to those drugs really quickly, right? So if someone takes a trip on LSD, actually they're not gonna take a trip the next day because essentially, the system is saturated that It might be weeks or months before they try and do right. that again. So it's, so it's very physically unharmful. It, you can take, no one has ever died of an LSD overdose before.
2: When LSD was discovered by Albert Hoffman in 1936, it set off a clinical psychedelic revolution.
3: He immediately recognized that this was uh, some kind of powerful you know, psychoactive substance and he immediately got his psychiatrist friends involved in trying to study some of the effects of that and they realised that this could have therapeutic application, potentially, and then the Sandals laboratories started producing it and they started sending it, you know, doses out to psychiatry facilities all around the world so that people could run clinical trials with it.
4: Just what is LSD and what does it do?
3: And by the time you hit the 60s, you had literally thousands of clinical trials had been run and it leaked out of the labs, people started making clandestine laboratories and the war on drugs happened and that was the end of that. And that has been the status quo till maybe 10 years ago.
4: America's public enemy number one is drug abuse.
3: But that is changing.
2: From Johns Hopkins to New York University, and even our own Auckland University, clinically rigorous trials involving doses of psychedelics to treat depression, anxiety, and mood disorders are yielding some spectacular results.
5: You're looking at statistics of you know, a 50% reduction in depression symptoms in 70% of subjects within 24 hours. You know, If, you, if you're going to
2: use the word miracle, it applies
5: to something like this. Mm. Why are we not expanding access to something like
2: ketamine? That's Amadeus Diamond, who says that psychedelics may have saved his life.
5: You know, I had some serious problems with depression and anxiety and, um, and some pretty serious addiction problems. Um, I was a heroin addict at 13 for about two years, roughly. Started drinking to get off heroin and uh, that lasted about another four and a half years or something of, of some pretty serious problem drinking. The LSD experience completely changed my relationship with how I imbibed things, essentially. Um, and I mean, the, the details can be spared, but the point is that what happened during that experience was a complete epistemological shift where the information that I took seriously about myself and the way I fit into my, my family, my community, the world around me, in
2: relation to each other, just completely changed in the space of about six hours or so. And obviously we don't want to be reductive and say that anything can be a silver bullet, uh, but insofar as a silver bullet exists, it seems like you had that experience.
5: Having the type of experience I had, you know, it it seems like a miracle cure because people have been through, you know, maybe 20, 30 years of of SSRIs and tricyclates and CBT and exposure therapy and all this sort of thing, and nothing helps. And then, you know, you you get the dose right, you get the set and setting right, and, and bang, everything's different from that point. The experience can give you a buffer zone between a memory this is to put it very black and white, a memory and your emotional response to that memory. So instead of immediately recoiling from the memory and immediately falling back into the same response you had when the event occurred, you have a bit of a buffer zone. For me, it was a matter of, you know, I needed to look at it from the perspective of an adult instead of a scared child, which was what I had been dealing with for years. And it gave me that room to say, wait, hang on, I'm not, you know, seven, eight, nine, whatever the the memory might relate to I'm actually we're hoping over 18 at the very least <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and now my perspective is different and I'm able to, to sort of um, frame it differently and file it in a place that says you know this isn't something wrong with you this is something mm. that happened to you and something that there are ways to um, sort of move with and, right. and inculcate, and, and it doesn't have to be painful. And I'm probably going to tear up now because it just it moves me so much. Knowing that there's experiences there where people have maybe been suffering for 50 years, and they can have this experience that just shows them it's possible. You don't have to do that. You know, mm-hmm. you, you don't necessarily have to go through life accepting that it, it, it's all hurt.
2: Now he has started the Entheos Foundation, a group dedicated to breaking down the stigma surrounding psychedelics in academia and society more broadly. We've had a lot of public
5: uh, interest and a lot of public demand is, is, is probably the word I'm looking for here. We, we just get endless messages from people who are seeking therapy, who are, you know, they've had 20, 30 years in these situations and they've, they're, they're finally seeing something that might be able to help them had some good interest from some pretty high net worth places and we are certainly looking at being uh, a pretty big player in getting a lot of this research done.
2: Amadeus says it's not a matter of if, but when more radical drug reform reaches our shores. And as for the health minister's defence on not taking more radical action now. Andrew Little can sit there and say, you know, we, we went to the referendum. I
5: mean, firstly, that's a ridiculous argument. We're talking about two completely different things. Overhauling the MODA is a completely different question to legalising cannabis. Um, they, they require completely different discussions, completely different consultations, which I need to point out should not be with the uninformed public. When you're looking at something that's going to affect the health and criminality of an entire country, you don't go to a referendum. That's silly. I don't know why we did that. It, it, it doesn't make much sense. Um, and using that as a defence to making any further changes is just asinine, in my
2: opinion. So where does that leave us? Well, according to people like Sirish and Amadeus, at the very least we need to keep questioning the status quo.
3: There's two distinct things to consider, right? There's how we control these substances for people who want to use things recreationally. And that's really a question of our individual liberty in a civil society, right? And and what we should be able to access and how we should be able to use the freedom that our democratic nation gives us. And then on the other hand, we have the potential therapeutic uses of these drugs. And I think it's really important to keep those separate. It's really hard
5: to say whether we're going to get where I would like to be, Um, but the public outcry is there. I think if we continue with the pressure that we've seen, uh, coupled with a lot of the legislation change we've seen overseas, so uh, these these things are happening, the sky's not falling, we're a country of five million. The idea that we can't try similar things here is, is, is kind of silly. And realistically, there's one piece of advice I would just give absolutely everybody. Educate yourself. If you want to have these conversations with people, you need to be able to have them in a way that's credible, that's respectable, that is accurate to the data. Make sure that you know what you're talking about. That That's all you need to do. And then, and then you can't argue with facts, you know.
2: Words to live by. supplementary question is written and hosted by me finn hogan for newshub nation this episode was produced and edited by sam harvey and ben o'connor hannah brown is our executive producer both this podcast and our televised program are made with the support of new zealand on air if you like this episode and since you're listening to the end it would seem you did. why not help us out by subscribing and leaving us a review it's a huge help for more visit newshub.co.nz forward slash podcasts we'll see you next time